Hi, I'm Mark Hansford, editor of New Civil Engineer, and welcome to the Engineers Collective, our new monthly podcast where each month I will be joined by Deputy Editor Alexander Wynne, where we will dissect the month's biggest news stories before we're joined by a special guest who will talk through with us some of the biggest issues affecting the industry today. This month, Alex and I will be talking Crossrail, Tideway, High Speed 2, tall buildings in London, and Heathrow. And then we'll be joined by Ed McCann, Director of Expedition Engineering, ICE Vice President, and author of the ICE's Professional Skills Review. That's this month. Future skills on the Engineers Collective. The Engineers Collective is brought to you in association with Bentley Systems, advancing infrastructure. Find out more at bentley.com. This is fun, isn't it? Very exciting. So, what struck you this month? I love that the land, the city that is known for its tall buildings, full of reflective glass, bouncing everything everywhere. Um, New York is planning to ban tall steel and glass buildings. Surely not. It's crazy, but apparently the mayor, Bill de Blasio, one of the best names in a, of a city mayor ever, um, he's decided, you know, it's Empire State Building and Chrysler, it's just not going to be emulated quite so much anymore. He's just decided tall, tall glass and steel structures are inherently very inefficient. Um, existing buildings that are made of that combination are going to face hefty fines in, unless they start conforming to strict efficiency guidelines. So brilliant no one's going to want to occupy a building that costs them a fortune to run i am no expert in this area but i i I think we've been on enough judging visits in our time to know that there are challenges around making tall glass clad buildings efficient and in this world of massive challenges around uh, climate change and carbon i guess i can see where he's coming from but that's still quite a bold call for the city of New York, isn't yeah. it? We're still waiting for the sort of, you know, 32-storey timber buildings, I think, aren't we? I think we are. But we'll I think see. We I'm intrigued. Watch this space. What about you, Mark? What is hitting you in the face from NC this month? Well, I mean, it just has to be Crossrail, doesn't it? I'd like to say it's something else. We've been talking about Crossrail all year and all its troubles. Which it's, year? <laughs> well... 2019, 2018, um, you know, it's it, how late is it now? Is it two years? Is it three years? Probably three. And now this month, National Audit Committee has is, is, is come out with its kind of pretty in-depth report revealing, I think we all knew this, but revealing just how over budget some of the stations are. And we were talking a 499% cost increase on, on Whitechapel. That, that's the worst offender. But they're all in that kind of scale of overrun, really. Um, and it isn't even just the stations. The, the running tunnels completed a long time ago now. And I think, again, we, we have reported this as, 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 it, as it happened, but it's still pretty horrible and ugly to see it in a National Audit Office report for them to have run several hundred million pounds over budget each. It's just, well, it is what it is. Crossrail is going to be amazing when it opens no doubt but the fact that all this dirty linen is being aired just at a time we're really trying to get some traction on some other big infrastructure schemes i guess and i think you talk to people people who are kind of experts and and words like being banned around just to say it would be naive to assume that the problems on crossrail are now not having an impact on government appetites to fund Mm. other big infrastructure schemes Mm. i think while we know that from history public spending watchdog reports are somewhat after the fact usually and they are somewhat self-reflected on spending treasury money i.e our money the public it is kind of going to be interesting to see whether that has more of a reaching effect at the moment on people looking a bit introspectively on the engineering projects out there it feels like we're having to write a blank check at the moment to finish Crossrail. So where does that leave us with new projects and ones that are part way through the process? And yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, I mean, it isn't even just Crossrail, is it? I mean, Tideway, 
Bless it's, which is another great project and will be another great project when it opens. Um, again, this month it's revealed, it's been very transparent actually, early stages, um, quite rightly, but it is for good engineering reasons, is facing cost challenges already. Um, that is a slightly different circumstance, but again, it still is adding to that view, isn't it? And, and of course, well, high speed too. And we all know about its cost challenges. So, yeah, I, if you were government, you'd be thinking blank check time, wouldn't you? Kinda. We want to try and reassure people that's not the case. Well, we do. And actually, it is interesting, I think, that um, uh, last, last week, was it? I think we had a launch event for a very successful major infrastructure project, uh, Thameslink. Uh, a successful launch of their learning legacy website which is live and I would encourage every engineer involved in big infrastructure projects to go check it out just google it um, it's it's quite amazing to be fair they put loads of data and information mm. up there about how that project was delivered but in researching around that that launch event it was quite interesting that that was 15 years ago that was a project it was in danger of getting cancelled. It was in danger of getting cancelled because we were building up to a big government spending review in tricky economic times and there were suggestions the Chancellor at the time was going to absolutely scrap a lot of infrastructure projects. And we at New Civil Engineer, we, 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 we launched a campaign to, to keep 10 of those big projects in the pot. And by and large, it must have worked because quite a lot of those projects have now been built or being built. Crossrail was one of them. Thameslink was one of them. So uh, we'll have to drop that it was originally called Thameslink 2000. Well, but you yes, know. yes, and, and you know, it originally was costing considerably less yeah. than what it is now. But we love it today. Costing, but you know, it's worth but, it. but we love it. It's worth it. So, so I think I would like us to explore if we were going to do that same campaign now, 15 years later, ahead of another potentially quite brutal spending review. What projects would we put on our Stop the Cuts list 2019? Um, want to kick us off? Where would you go first? This is a tricky one. It takes, you know, it's a little bit like the Desert Island Discs thing. But I, in the past, might have surprised myself that I would end up saying this, but I am back behind Heathrow Third Runway. Wow. There is a big shout. I know. But it's got through its latest relentless hurdles um, and I, they're very valid I understand the reasons why but I just keep coming back to that point of it's operating at 98% capacity now we've got planes in the sky circling relentlessly causing all sorts of air quality problems it's not like it's this perfect well-oiled machine now that is just wanting to become a beer moth it's it's a nightmare We've got to fix that somehow. It's not going to be... Is anyone else volunteering to take less planes anywhere? Probably no. not. Even Brexit might not stop people wanting to go abroad. No. So, I just think, pragmatically, if there isn't a better solution and technology hasn't helped us quite resolve getting planes cleaner and onto the ground quicker yet, but that could be forthcoming, I hope that will all help us kind of start thinking it is the right project it's in the right part of the country for a broad range of people it's going to get crossrail coming to it shortly once the surface access is even more buoyed and bolstered i think that is probably where heathrow i think should probably take more of a financial stake and say this is what we're actually going to improve for everyone there yeah. you go i'm going to get letters in. and you know i mean there's a small element of Sorting out the M25, but... Small um, element. Come on, engineers, you can do we it. We can solve that. Yeah. So, okay, so he froze in. Um, the only thing I would say is, I, before I get really ranty people, I live in south-west London, right under the flight paths. I get it. It's bad, but I'm still pro it. The brilliant. end. What about you, yeah. Mark? Well, Come on. for me, well, it's a simple one. I mean, notwithstanding current problems on Crossrail 1, um, it's got to be Crossrail 2, and... I say that for two good reasons. One being um, Michelle Dix would kill me if I didn't say that, <laughs> um, which I think is a valid enough reason for, for, for anyone who knows Michelle Dix. Um, but, but fundamentally, oh, there is funny. nothing wrong with Crossrail 2 as a concept. It is a brilliant idea. And a great chief exec behind it. And a great chief exec. <laughs> 
Um, but it is, it, it, it's fundamentally, you know, it, we talk all the time about how infrastructure needs to not just solve a transport problem, but actually create new opportunities. And that's the whole point of Crossrail too. It's creating an opportunity to, to put homes uh, north east of London. It's an opportunity to create jobs. It's an opportunity to, to get people into the, into the centre of town. It's a job. It's an opportunity to relieve the massive congestion on the rail lines into southwest London. There's a lot going for that project. The only problem, I guess, really, is because it kind of goes through London. It doesn't do much for Londoners. The London Mayor is perhaps not that mad keen on it. Is he a bit distracted? You think as well? Well, possibly. Maybe but, he's not so trusting of his transport initiatives of late. Yeah, yeah. There is probably a job to be done to persuade yeah. Sadiq that um, a project with Crossrail in the name is going to go well. Yeah. And what about if Crossrail is a blank cheque at the moment, what does that mean for Crossrail 2? Well, we kind of know what it actually means Crossrail 2, don't we? And actually, most of the money being set aside for Crossrail 2 has been spoiled up by Crossrail 1. And so as a result, they've been it? given some more design time. Um, Hang on, but we don't want to just keep trying to find efficiencies in design. Where, is there not just another way of raising funds, given everyone thinks that a blank cheque at the end of the day is probably worth it for a great project? Mm. So why are we trying to do the cuts too soon, perhaps? Maybe, maybe. Anyway, that's me, Crossrod 2. Um, couple, couple more. Okay. I think we, we probably need to get out of London, I'm guessing, and perhaps, you know, less so on the old transport side of things. But this has a caveat before I say this. Um, Swansea Bay Tidal Lagoon but in public ownership, I'm thinking, Ooh. controversially, or some kind of more publicly driven project, because clearly there's a suspicion around the commercial imperative for this for a particular group of people without it actually being focused on the benefits of the project. But come on, it's a renewable energy source. I'm hearing it was a dead ecological lagoon, so it's one of the only ways that you're going to get a decent size energy source from the sea in a system as opposed to those brilliant ones that are sort of individual tidal power projects up off Orkney and wherever. Um, it just sounds brilliant. Well, it's free and energy. Once you built it, obviously, yeah. massive upfront cost, but free energy yeah. once you built it. And social infrastructure. Social it's a nice walkway, apparently. Mm. I think there was a brilliant idea of some dragon emerging from the sea as well with like, you know, some Welsh poetry kind of being cited from it. It just sounds great. It sounds iconic. Well, I'm game. I think it hasn't gone away. The, the, the promoters are pushing for it. The Welsh government is, is pushing yeah, for it. it's clean. So, you know, if there's, an, if, there's, if there's a case to be made for central government to be supporting Welsh government a little bit, well, there's, there's the obvious project, isn't it? So that's, that's got to yeah. be in, isn't it? Yeah. Um, What's your next one, Mark? Well, I'm, 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 I'm a bit transporty here, aren't I? But, but the, the other, my obvious other one, the Lower Thames Crossing. Now, surely okay. that is a complete... Um, complete no-brainer. Remind us where it is, though, because people might think this is right in right next central to London. Yeah, no, oh. no, it's, we're, we're talking about um, we're talking about heading out to, towards uh, Epsilete, Gravesend, that sort of area, yeah. aren't we? And relieving the M25 of Dartford, which clearly needs relieving. Engineering-wise, it's an entirely deliverable scheme, mm-hmm. one would assume. Yes, there is some serious environmental... Um, well... Here's the point. Some some serious environmental enhancement opportunities ah, to be done tell me by more. putting said road um, through um, the, the the green Kent countryside. Um, but I say that because one of my reasons I think this is an amazing project is I think the, the person in charge, Tim Jones, absolutely absolutely will will deliver this project. Um, track record, delivered M25, fantastic engineer, fantastic runner of projects but also massively aware of the importance of delivering high quality environmental schemes um he's been on record and new civil engineer many a time talking about previous projects which absolutely didn't meet his expectations twyford down being the classic example um and interestingly i think one of the one of the problems or frustrations that um that uh, teams like tim are having is 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 actually when you talk about schemes like Lower Thames Crossing, the language is always about environmental mitigation, which immediately sounds like a negative. You're going into 
You're going into any kind of public room saying, yeah, I know, we're building a road and we're going to mitigate the impact of that. Surely the language would be better if we were talking, and we will be doing something environmental enhancement as part of this scheme. I think it would be even better if we actually tell people what that, any of that means. Yes. They're all fairly policy, corporate speak, aren't they? If it is environmentally enhancing, let's tell them how. Absolutely. Let's talk about how this, this, pro- yes, this project... Yes, Because HS1, that did... In, in the end, it realised that it actually improved the ecology around some parts of Kent. It got more green space in, in, introduced. It got a better ecological habitat for certain newts i think maybe it wasn't newts but it was some kind of you know habitat was increased as a result of what they did to mitigate they still use that word mitigate have we got an idea of some of the nice enhancements that actually could come alongside a new road well i don't i'm sure tim does yeah. i'm sure he <laughs> maybe is he's gonna, a future guest i'm on. sure he's going to tell us when he when he comes on the engineers collective soon um because that's got to be our message as an industry. So I think there's, there's many good reasons why that could be a great exemplar project and why it should absolutely plough ahead, particularly now, obviously, in the wake of um, private finance being stripped away from it. It's entirely publicly funded as we speak. That may change, but as we speak, it's entirely publicly funded. So absolutely, it needs protecting from any, any cuts. Okay. All right, last one then, Alex. Sprinkler retrofitting is my next one. It's not strictly a project. It's not really kind of, you know, a sort of, uh, there's no money for it at the moment, but it, it needs to be found in my book. We need it in all tall buildings, particularly in any social housing that doesn't already have it. I don't understand. I don't think anyone can make the moral argument anymore for it being fine to put them and specify them in new builds for people that might be slightly more... Um, financially able to pay higher rents and higher um, prices for properties it just feels like a penalizing of the poor why is their safety not as valuable to us as people who can afford more things so how are we going to do it i don't know but surely the technology has now improved dramatically over the years doesn't require such vast water tanks these misting systems it must be doable we've been doing we remember Grenfell changes actually the adaptations being instigated were actually sort of coming out of a desire to do something good it was about the energy bills reducing people's energy bills and slightly improving the look of the place but we need to just focus on actually keeping people safe in these buildings Right, before we move on and bring in our special guest, there's two things to say, really. One is that's five from us. We'd love to know what you out there think. So please tweet us, LinkedIn at us, get in touch any way you like. Um, But let us know what five schemes should join those five schemes. Should those five schemes stay on the list? Let us know. Well, I'll tell you what, Alex, one thing we haven't mentioned and it's not made our, our top five, so a project called High Speed 2. Where do we... Mm. Or, or, mm. Um, we yeah, I was hoping no one would notice no, that. No, so was I. Um, should we just leave that one hanging? Yeah, possibly. Yeah, quite a bit of work to be done there. Yeah. Talk to the... Uh, yeah. yeah. Yes. Okay, we'll leave that on there hanging. Um, but do let us know what your schemes are. Um, but now it's time to bring in our special guest. Um, this month's uh, podcast, we're, we're focusing on the future of skills... So who better to bring in than uh, Mr. Ed McCann? The Engineers Collective is brought to you by Bentley Systems. Around the world, engineers, architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Bentley software solutions to accelerate project delivery and improve asset performance for the infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment. Together, we are advancing infrastructure. Ed, welcome. <coughs> Thank you for joining us in our first ever podcast. So to those listening... We don't know perhaps much about Expedition. Um, just give us a little summary of, of who you are, where you came from, what you do, and I guess with the skills topic in mind, what kind of people do you employ? Okay, so uh, Expedition is one of a, a number of uh, startups that emerged from Arup, um, and the founders left in 99, did the whole back bedroom thing. Um, and initially, we're doing things like Arup, so uh, um, sort of 
structural engineering for high architecture projects. Over the years, we've developed that um, service offering and we now do uh, strategic engineering for master planning. We're working with clients on um, process innovation, productivity, which is a hot agenda at the moment. Um, and we do a lot of work on complex cut and carve projects, so big um, buildings that are being re-engineered from inside, which are particularly demanding. Um, and to do that sort of work, I mean, we, uh, we um, I think it's probably fair to say we employ people who are highly technically competent. So um, the one thing that would be common in the practice is that everybody's, um, I would say, off the top of the deck for technical skills. And then we support that, uh, a significant number of them are notable conceptual designers and strategic thinkers. And we try and make sure that everybody's a, a good communicator, able to form effective relationships with their clients and engage with the public as is required. Um, ethically, I think they're, 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 they're all they're quite millennial in attitude, so people, they're, they're strong greenies, want to see social purpose in, in what we're doing, um, believe in the, in the mission as it were, probably not desperately commercial by comparison with some. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's the crew as it stands today. So that's the crew as it stands, isn't it? so it sounds like that's quite a strong bunch of traditional engineers, is that fair to say? Yes, I think the way we did this, or we've done diversification, is is with other small businesses that are part of the group. And so we have a consultancy business, a graphic design and comms business, we have an education skills business. And so in those areas, you'll find a lot of different skills. So in the room, you've got architects, you've got graphic designers, illustrators... Um, consultants uh, as well as the engineers but I think within the core engineering business it still looks pretty I would say pretty traditionally engineering. Well so that's brilliant that is the perfect example of a I guess quite a dare I say the word quite a traditionally structured structural civil engineering business is that good for you for now that's that's working that's still providing the clients what so you want? I, I don't it? think it is actually uh, what you see in a traditional business and the reason I say that is mo most businesses when they grow become multidisciplinary practices we didn't do that so we, we what we adopted was a multi-niche strategy so the, these are not um, it's we're not attempting to offer everything to everyone all the time at top quality we're very specific we have niche marketing strategies and these these individual brands each play into very specific uh, niches within the built environment but the, it's not a multidisciplinary offer which would be the standard growth model in our sector and we did that for a number of reasons but um, that's what we've got mm. cool but it's really I think really reassuring and particularly putting your IC skills review professional review hat on looking at that broader world I think some of us were sort of holding our breath wondering if digital was going to come through as you know the fix all to everything and unless you were digital then you could wave goodbye to a civil engineering career it wasn't the message at all was it and and what was really interesting I think some of the stuff you said within the review findings but also at our recent roundtable debate on skills how well is the industry doing though at embracing the traditional technical there are some concerns are there around actually the quality of technical drawing say so, so, I mean, it was pretty clear that, that you, you, you get two different answers depending on who you speak to. So the, the, the chatter at the top table and the CEOs is quite often about the absolute essential nature of digital transformation and my business is going in this direction. And you put people with titles like operational director in the title in a room and you get them talking about, can we please lay curbstones straight, please? You know, so, so there's, a, there's a, a lived experience on construction sites across the country which points to the need for good, practical, proven, skills, proper sequencing, proper management, supervision, and all the, all the sort of stuff that everyone would recognise, um, and, and feel, I would say, clearly disconnected from the pressing urgent need for digital everything. Mm -hmm. um, whereas at the top table, clearly people are seeing digital as it's going to change the way the industry works, automation's going to come through, big data's going to have huge impact. Both of these things are true. You know, both of these things are true. We need to address um, the skills needs of getting projects done today. We also need to embrace the opportunities and challenges that um, the digital transformation presents us. Is it so with the skills need in the technical sphere? Is it more, do you think, from the review findings and the feedback you had in that broader sense, the, a quantity issue or a quality issue or both? I think that the. the, the 
the there yeah it's hard to sort of focus on just one thing so you, it mm. kind of depends who you are so lots of people will say and we, we've seen this in not just in the skills review we saw this a lot through the get it right initiative research people are talking about an intergenerational low in the quality of design information they're talking about design drawings that are incomplete mm. incoherent uncoordinated and they arrive at site and have to be redrawn and re-engineered lots and lots of people who spend their life building stuff point to problems of that character um, and so and they argue that some of the skills that were historically in design teams about producing and coordinating information appear not to be there now and how they having to come back and do it again as part of a construction play so you hear lots of people saying that sort of stuff if you speak to the designers a lot of them will point to actually we're not being paid to do this anymore our fees have been pressurized we're having to put a different business model in front of the clients with lots of junior staff and so these are the causal factors so it's it's hard to be absolutely categorical and it's certainly impossible to say there's one just simple fix to address all of this but i think it's if you were to, if you were to point a finger at technical skills i think it's it's probably not what you think it is it's not people don't know how to do bending moments it's more about processes engineering processes like producing drawings um that people seem to struggle with and um people talk about issues at the interfaces so where one system hits another so uh, you know yeah i know all about this but actually i don't really know what the other guy's trying to do and and so i struggle to coordinate are we just in a kind of this sort of bridging place now where a lot of people just don't see that as very important anymore because computers kind of do most of that and where there is the gap and the computer isn't quite doing it people just just there can't be bothered or, or what's the What's the motivation there? So I think that there's a a few things that go into play. First of all, is I would say that we're, as an industry, probably no worse than any other professional industry you look at. And if you you want to have a go at medicine, then have a go at medicine and law, and you can find errors and problems and deficiencies. And most people don't bother looking. We've had a look. And so, and I'm not, I think we should be quite open about that. And go, at at its best, the UK construction industry is fantastic. But actually, there's a lot of it that's not at its best. And so... If we deny that, we're kidding ourselves and everybody else. Mm-hmm. So as to why we are in this particular situation we are and why is its particular character, I think there's something quite interesting has happened over the last 25 years, uh, which is still working its way through the system. In fact, I'd go back a little bit further. I'd say two mm-hmm. things have happened. Um, the first of them is that there was a sort of fundamental shift to the way that construction was procured dating from the early 80s. And it was combined with the abolition of fee scales and the growth of D&B as a, as a design and build, as a, a procurement model that became dominant for a number of years. Both of those things had a profound impact which wasn't seen for quite a while on the structure of the industry, the way that uh, consultants operate, the way that contractors operate and the relationship between the two of them. The second thing I point to is that the digital revolution, it's not really a revolution, it's an evolution, it's been going on for a long, long time. And um, But if you think about the way that uh, digital really begins to hit our industry I would say in the sort of 70s when we start using computational modelling to, to help us do stuff. Um, and for many people, that that they didn't really notice that, but it made a difference. But they really started noticing when we started using AutoCAD-type products and automated drawing products. And as has gradually spreadsheet design, calculations done like this, a separation of the engineer from the act of drawing and the act of building. Engineering is done through spreadsheets or software packages. That sort of disconnect has had the unintended consequence of separating the people who do design from the activity of bringing into life on a building site. And that these were not, these were not imagined consequences, but standing here today, we can look at them and go, ah, So we took a process which probably, uh, the process of design and construction had evolved in 150 years, let's say, from 1820 to 1970. And in the last 20, 30 years, we've completely taken that apart, reconfigured it in a load of different procurement models, chucked a whole load of tech at it, stirred the pot substantially, and created a degree of, of, of um, disruption that has these sorts of consequences for us, and we haven't quite figured out how to deal with them yet. And so when we talk about the digital revolution, well, the biggest impact is on the process of what we do. And we're still struggling with the process of what we do today, let alone taking on board BIM and digital twins and all the rest of it. So looking at ways to deal with it, there were a couple quite 
um, potentially contentious recommendations in, in the skills report, one of which was the idea of introducing the mid-career review to professional engineers. What's your current sort of view on it? What we what we pointed to there, and it was a sort of resounding noise from the audience. Really, was no one found it defensible to notion that an exam you sit when you're 27 year old, 27 years old, let's say, guarantees your competence to do anything when you're 45 or indeed 30. And so, so the notion that a, a qualification once achieved was a guarantee of, of competence remote from that was was plausible and indeed um, it were you to be flying on planes where nobody ever paid any attention to the competence of the pilot or seeing doctors who hadn't had a touch base on whether they knew what was happening with drugs for the last 30 years would find that at all appealing so we were so our starting position was this looks highly questionable as a sort of proposition so what do we if we are in, if we're um, concerned about assuring competence if society thinks what we do is important enough for it to require competence and that that competence should be assured well how do we do that because what we've got at the moment doesn't really and so um, you mentioned a mid-career review. All we've really said in the report that someone needs to have a, a good look at this and decide how best to do it. Um, there are a variety of different ways in different sectors um, or different areas where you do this sort of stuff. So if you know about the doctors, they get peer-reviewed regularly every year or two by their peers who sit down and go, have you been on a course? Have you... Have you um, paid attention? Do you have you killed loads of people? Whatever it is, they 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 test, but they are regularly reviewed by their peers, and their peers, the people who sign off on them, are responsible for their competence. So if they make a big mistake, then their peers will find themselves answering to the authorities in their profession about, well, why did you? What was going on? Did you do the job properly? How did that get through? How didn't you notice those sorts of things? So that's that's one model. They uh, um, have different models in in the aviation industry, and all we've really done in the review is said we think you need to, we need to as an industry focus on this. And I think you're going to see a lot more coming out of in plain sight and the um, the um, work that. Um, Dame Judith has done on um, post Grenfell and and many other bits that no doubt will come out of Grenfell about what do we need to assure, what skills are what warrant that sort of assurance, and then how do we do it? And I think for me, it, it's it's clearly important if you're if you're uh, the ICE, um, you, you've got to come up with something that is valuable and practical. So people who are participating in this process must see value in it. Their employers must see value in it. Society must somehow or other see value in it, otherwise it won't happen. And it's also got to be practical. You can't spend 364 days a year proving your competence to work one day a year. So, so and that's the, well, the I think, challenge. Because I think, ultimately, the, the, the role of the engineer is an incredibly responsible one. It's an incredibly powerful one. It's, it's a great one. Um, and as you know, with the doctor example, where, where you know you would expect competence because there is a serious life or death consequence to a to a doctor's competence. I mean, it is the same with engineering. I mean, you've mentioned obviously Grenfell, which is a terrible tragedy, and obviously your skills review was kind of happening around the time of Grenfell, and obviously the other reviews you've mentioned have kind of come out and sort of echoed some of the findings. But similarly, in in infrastructure. Last year, we had the terrible bridge collapses in in Florida and uh, and in Genoa. So there is a clear, obviously, public responsibility towards making sure that, that we are competent. So I so I can so I guess so to someone from the public taking a close look at engineers and what and what they do, you could easily see a kind of a strong a strong call for some kind of sort of regular reviewing, but. I guess it can't be that simple because otherwise we'd already be doing it. Yeah, the, the, it's 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 um, it's quite challenging. I, I mean, you take the, the, those those um, the, the disasters we've seen over the last few years. A, a number of those will have. Um, process non-compliance causes. Is they meant to do this and they didn't, and it went wrong. Whether they are quite competence questions. Uh, it remains to be seen. What was clear was they didn't do what they were meant to do. 
the question as to why they didn't do it becomes quite nuanced. So I think that the, there is a question about how much competence is a factor in these things. For instance, there's a, there's a guy who's a loss adjuster who participates in Geary, and he said to me, I've forgotten, count, I've forgotten the number of um, claims I've dealt with over the years. And he says, I can't think of a single one where you would not have evaluated the personalities involved as competent 10 minutes before it went wrong. So he, he was saying, that actually, it's not really about competence, it's about performance. You know, Chris Waddle could bang a penalty in 19 times out of 19, except when it mattered. And it goes flying over the bar and we're out, you know. And so, so it was a performance issue, it wasn't a competence issue. And so what creates performance? So it's quite complex in yeah. dealing with that. I think, actually, uh, and, we, sorry, and we tend to focus on the competences around protecting life. So there's always a lot of noise about buildings that fall over and all the rest of it, and for very understandable reasons. You might ask the question, well, you know, the economic damage the engineers may do dwarfs the life safety damage, the um, uh, life safety impacts of what they do. Is that a poorly conceived and executed scheme may cost the country millions, hundreds of millions, sometimes billions, and that that money is money that could be spent, maybe should be spent on hospitals, schools, social infrastructure of all sorts, and any, many other useful things. And so I think there, there is a question about whether the focus of competence should be pointed at the ability to develop really good economic and social outcomes rather than just this sort of management of risk that is so dominant in the safety space, which may be done in other ways. But anyways. I'm really interested in this part of it, and it sounds like it could be an opportunity to be really positive about the industry rather than seeming like a an extra burdensome horrible kind of you know auditing of of people's behaviors and everything you know ripping apart of what engineers do it could be a chance to make it a really you know what we do amazing things and this is why and this is how we approve it and it also sounds like you could even reinstate those sort of elder states people i want to say of engineering as the sort of peer reviewing celebrated people like you know dream of the day where it's the sounds rubbish saying engineer, but like the star star architect equivalents in engineering because to be able to then say actually we do our best we do this for very good reasons what we need to get better at is the business or the process of engineering on occasion and it's not just about we hit the headlines when in the wider press when something horrible has happened to human life you know that's i think something it's, that's really interesting i think it's really important important to understand that the avoidance of a negative isn't a positive and uh, my, my friend uh, um, Chris Wise I remember hearing him say 20 years ago he said that unfortunately the language of engineering is full of words like stress and failure and collapse and uh, actually what we're trying to do is not stop collapse we're trying to make buildings and roads and infrastructure that enables human activity, human life, human fulfillment. And I think that, that, that you make a good point is that we, it's, we would be well advised to focus on competence to improve the positive impacts that we have by making better schemes, delivering better outcomes for society, rather than just the very negative take, which is avoiding death through buildings. That's not to say buildings falling down. It's not to say you don't have to do that. But actually, if the competence focus is just about stopping things falling down, it, it, won't, it will end up just being a whole load of process controls and, and probably, if you ask me, won't work. <laughs> I think we, we, need to, we need to get the, the balance right. And I think probably the avoidance of a negative may well be more about performance management, whereas the, um, the generation of continuous positives may be more about competence development. If you are someone who is consistently good at coming up with good schemes if you're consistently good at stakeholder management we get lots of um, and that's competence then we get better outcomes mm. yeah. you know if we make sure that the scenario that wraps around the you know the jacking of strands on a bridge is properly managed we avoid a negative that leads us to, uh, the other thing that struck us on nc i think out of the recommendations of the um review was was partly on this idea of where appropriate could we be investing talent and time and effort in more expert panels akin to the reservoir panel and i know we talked on this previously where this is not now practical about just every possible discipline in engineering having an expert panel reviewing but again is this something now are there particular 
peaks where you think, you know what, it would be really great there if we had something in operation that, again, just elevated that discipline rather than be seen to be sort of a critic and a sort of defensive... But what, what you're talking about there are the sort of registers. Mm. So you can't sign off on a dam unless you are registered as a panel engineer. And I mean, that stuff is covered by legislation. There are a series of other sort of um, registers that exist that are controlled by law. Mm. Uh, you could easily imagine we would have de facto um, panels where we say, well, we're not going to let you you know the industry is not going to let you do these things unless you're registered on this thing i think you've got to be slightly careful about that because you can just build up you know I, i've got a, you know a passport with 300 things i'm allowed to do and you've got 200 and all this sort of stuff and it could get really overwhelmingly bur burdensome in terms of i'm um, qualifying 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 for things that i don't necessarily do very often yeah. and you've got to ask where's the value so i would come at it from the other direction is i basically say what are those things that we think are really critical in a system that we need to assure competence around mm -hmm. and at some point someone said dams and the reason they said dams was because a couple of dams had failed and lots of people had lost their lives so they said this is tricky it involves high levels of engineering skill and judgment that need to be continually assessed reviewed and developed so we're going to say you're not allowed to do this unless you are qualified like that i have a sort of view that you i'd quite like to see it on signing construction drawings I think I think if I was to if I was to if I wanted to transform industry by a register, I'd say you're not allowed to sign a construction drawing unless you are uh, uh, qualified to do so. It might be controversial, but if you talk about the focal point, so it doesn't really matter if a you know no one's going to die because a graduate doing a bit of modelling over here is a bit crap and they they make a few mistakes and the rest of it. The chances are that gets picked up. Where the rubber hits the road is when the person signs a construction drawing and satisfies themselves that this can be safely built, that all of the processes that have ended up with the information on this drawing being trustable have been done properly. I, I, I would like to see that person as a person of significance in the world. Well, you say that sounds controversial, but also it doesn't sound that difficult to do. Sounds brilliant, though. Yeah. In many, in many countries in the world, actually, that's you, you, the person who signs a construction drawing, if the building goes down, they get sent to prison. And it's pretty categoric and pretty simple. And you're not allowed to sign a construction drawing unless you are a registered, as it happens, architect or engineer. What they do in most countries is basically they allow anyone who's a registered engineer or architect to sign, depending on the, what the discipline, they sign the drawings. But it's, it, it has the consequence of focusing effort, focusing minds and um, driving um, certain sorts of behaviours. I, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that. I think the very specific discipline yeah. of signing a construction drawing is not, not all engineers sign construction drawings but I would like to see the people who do as being a particular breed who might be quite valuable uh, in making sure that what goes out over their name is well done and it forces that immediate sort of contractor consultant behavior collaboration it forces that buildability to come up at the earliest possibility well, it would, it would it, with a swipe of a pen get rid of a lot of the problems that people are talking about about the poor poor quality of construction information because the person responsible would would simply not be able to be that person and produce rubbish because um, they would be caught out so what would we need to do to make that happen then quickly <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that might take a while because there's, there's a lot of people who would look at that as terrifying. Yeah. Is that, that, hang on yeah. a sec, what? Sorry, I haven't got anyone who's qualified to sign construction drawings, and yet I produce them all the time. <laughs> no, I, we I think won't it, do a survey. I don't <laughs> think at this point. So I think I think what what uh, where where are, uh, that's one thought. Mm. There are loads, and and I think that I think what the institution and the industry at large need to do, and I think it will come out through what you're seeing on Grenfell in plain sight and so on, is they'll start saying, do you know what, at this moment in history, a bit like dams, we need the people who do that to be, um, you know, competence assured. And whether it is in fire engineering post Grenfell or it is in, I don't know, systems integration on major infrastructure projects or that whatever. That would be something that would be good to have some sign off on. May, maybe these are, these are 
challenge areas in the industry where we, we have demonstrated that we're not quite there and that the people who are going to lead on that, they need to have some, um, they need to be on a register or something. But we'll see. Okay, great. Well, let's, let's kick on then. Let's talk about the emerging skills. Um, so, I, so I guess, from, from, I guess from your perspective, Ed, uh, working for expert, with Expedition, but in the industry more broadly, um, who's going who's gonna to bring in these, these, these digital skills into, into your business? Is this a case of civil engineers developing those skills? whether it's being developing coding skills or programming skills, or is that just a whole different bunch of people that you're going to bring into your business as we move into a digital world where design is automated and uh, construction is automated? I, I think the, the, at the moment what we're seeing is that the, the people we need are people... Um, and it's not everyone, but we, we, need, we need a proportion of the people that we take on board to have significantly better than average digital skills. For us, there, there are, you know, and I can see them in my mind's eye, a small proportion, maybe it's 10% of people in our office, who you would look at and go, these people have significantly better than average digital skills. And they are the sort of people who will write parametric coding, um, they'll do programming, um, and are really quite fluent about jumping from one um, language to another and understanding what the capability of the different bits and pieces are and um, they, they are but they, the people we're getting they are out of the general rump of civil engineers they just happen to be civil engineers with a particular interest and skill in that area but that's largely because what we're using them to do is traditional engineering activity so in a sense we're automating our existing processes and these characters have the skill set that allow us to do that they understand the engineering process they've got the digital skills they are helping us do that i think where you probably are going to have to look outside the existing cohort is when you're trying to play around with um, the sort of opportunities of entirely new tech new processes and new applications for data so for instance the geospatial stuff that people are doing now uh, asset coding artificial intelligence to understand and develop asset registers all that sort of stuff there if i look inside the existing cohort of civil engineers there's not there's not enough of that to be plausible so um, i think uh, at the moment um in, in our business where it is really about evolving the existing processes um, we seem to be able to get you pick up some some digitally sparky uh, engineers and they are able to do what we need to do as we move and our clients if it is us in the end who gets asked to do stuff like can you codify this room using a point cloud and facial recognition technology and AI so that you can learn to code, blah, blah, blah. If they ask us to do that, I think we'll be looking outside for people from those areas to help us. What about the project managers that are useful in that world? I don't, I mean, I don't know in your business whether you broaden a need to broaden to bring in people with a totally non-math science background for, for actual sort of quite primary, secondary, civil engineering related activity. I mean, it's probably certainly more in the wider So, so where chain. I am on this is I think that the big mistake we make is applying a filter at the age of 18. And it was one of the things we found in the report. There's a huge correlation between being willing and able to sit in a room on your own for two years doing maths and physics hard sums as a sort of entry qualification for the world of engineering. I think what I believe and I, I feel was, was in the room with us was that nobody disagreed with the idea that by the time you're in practice, you need to have the physics you need and you need to be highly numerate and have all of that sort of skill. But, but applying the filter at 18 was basically slicing out a whole load of potential uh, at the wrong moment. And so I, I think that the, what, what the report talks about, the, the, the need to rethink how that that pipeline in um, and the, because we are missing a series of what turn out to be really really important skills um, that aren't buried in the curricula of maths and physics a levels mm. and so um, I, I, I think that 
so I, I would say is I think for us as a business, uh, I'd be I don't think it's plausible that we don't have the broad rump of our business being people who are competent in sort of what you might call engineering, traditional engineering subjects. I would be really reluctant to put someone in front of a client on a serious project who I didn't believe understood properly, you know, Newtonian mechanics, material properties, and was reliably numerate. I'd, I'd feel very nervous about that. Um, but I also fully recognise we need people who um, bring all sorts of other sensibilities to it, whether it's aesthetic appreciation, um, the ability to communicate and relate um, to, yeah, do all sorts of other mm. stuff. But so for me, the, the the key thing is not to not to chop it off at sixteen or seventeen. Try and keep it an open pool. Work on the maths, mm. physics, and so on to generate the skills outputs you need. But we're only one business, and and I think it's really important to understand that civil engineering is and and indeed the construction industry they're massive, absolutely massive. And and by no means does everybody working in that space need to be, um, you know, these very specific things. There's plenty of need for. Um, all sorts of geographers. I, I, I'm not even going to name them because it's basically everybody, um, ha the skill sets that people have there. So we need to be much more, I think, much more um, uh, broad-minded in understanding the value that different skills and abilities bring to um, problem-solving and, and, and delivering infrastructure. Uh, notwithstanding the fact that I want to, you know, if I'm walking across a bridge, I want to know that someone who knew how to add up was involved in the process. I think the rest of the world would agree with you on that. But <laughs> Seems pretty non-contentious. <laughs> You've slightly stolen my final <laughs> invitation to you that given this is the future of skills, what's your message of hope to our listeners or call to arms even? Oh, I think I think it's not, it's, it's not where this conversation has sat really. I think that the... the, the um, I, I think the future of hope comes from two things really one of them is we are we've we've understood or began to understand over the last few decades how people learn and just how much people can learn through their life when they put their minds to it um, and secondly we have through the digital technology available to us um, and all of the learning that comes from sort of you know that science of learning um, we, we have an ability to help people learn really quickly how to be better at what they do. A sort of notion of just-in-time skills mm. seems to me plausible, um, uh, increasingly plausible. And so I think that there's a, there's a, a, a really interesting possibility in the future where um, we are able to uh, develop the skills we need in a much more effective and enjoyable way through our professional lives. And so the, the, the message of hope is that um, that sort of notion that you had to go through some kind of Olympic trial at the age of 16, 17, 18, 19 and there in order to, you know, to be anything is just not real. And, and I think that a, a, a model where you can, you can learn to be the best of yourself is, is, is available to us. Perfect. Fantastic. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Ed. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Um, thank you for helping us uh, solve the future of skills. There we are, done. All in the first episode. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so that's it, the first episode in the bag. Thanks again to Ed McCann and my co-host, Mark. We'll be back next month, so don't forget to subscribe. And if you like this, please feel free to say something nice in the review section. Join us next time for a look at the future of airports in the meantime. Also, check out newcivilengineer.com and pick up your copy of New Civil Engineer. <laughs>